So Money episode 1532, founder Mariam Nafisi on remaking yourself, navigating naysayers, and the future of blockchain and AI. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Having everything wiped out when you're 40 and starting 100% from the from zero, that was sort of their life and their stress. And then I was dealing with the school stress. So it was it was tumultuous, I would say, but it, you know, it was a very good learning experience because for me, I just went to my strength and, and stuck with my strength, which at that point was really my intellectual strengths. Like I, my best friend was my, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to invest in this brain, you know, and the brain of this brain is going to get me out of this situation. That's how I thought about it, which was, uh, you know, I have this one thing that that's, a, this is one thing I can control. It's my brain. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. We're welcoming today guest Mariam Nafisi. She is a veteran entrepreneur who has founded and scaled successful companies, including Eve.com, the world's first online cosmetics retailer, Minted, the online marketplace of premium design goods created by independent artists and designers, and Tonic XYZ, a curated fine art gallery focused on blockchain art. Today, Miriam is the founder and managing partner of Heretic Ventures, the San Francisco-based venture studio that founds companies at the intersection of culture, commerce, and creators. On our show, we talk about how Mariam was born to Iranian and Chinese parents, how her childhood in diverse countries shaped her perspective. She talks about overcoming a lot of adversity when her family fled Iran during the 1979 revolution and faced challenges upon arriving in the U.S. On the show, Mariam shares her tactics for closing deals, offers advice for those of us seeking venture capital, and because of her keen eye for innovative ideas, had to ask her for her insights on crypto, blockchain, NFTs, and of course, artificial intelligence. Join us as we explore her journey, her resilience, and Miriam's transformative ideas. Mariam Nafisi, welcome to So Money. I have wanted to have you on the show. You may not, you don't know this for a long time, but you're quite busy. So I'm happy and grateful that you're making time for us now. I'm so happy to be here. Very, very honored. Yes. I, I mean, the reason really is for so many reasons. I, I want to learn from you as um, someone who's such a, a phenomenal business leader, creator, innovator, entrepreneur, but someone who also has a very storied background. Maybe we could start there with your childhood. I was reading about um, how you are a daughter of Iranian and Chinese parents. I'm Iranian. I'm an Iranian <laughs> mother and father. And you spent your years in many countries growing up, including Egypt, Iran, Tanzania. That's pretty extraordinary for anybody. I can't imagine a young child experiencing that. And what do you remember most about those early years traveling and, and being all over the world? A lot of very hot sunshine. <laughs> it was I was living in very hot countries. I was um, my dad was a development economist with the United Nations Development Project, and then subsequently the Department of Agriculture. He's an agricultural department a, a economist with the Iranian Department of Agriculture, and then. After that, the USAID, Agency for International Development. So that that took us around the world to Kuwait, Lebanon, 
Tanzania, Iran, and Egypt. And um, I just remember, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, I would say there was this mixture of a lot of happiness and joy in really interesting countries. And I was really a, kind of a tourist, if you will. I was either at British or American schools the whole time, but I got enough of a sense. I would stay long enough to really feel, you know, sort of embedded in each country. Um, and it was a mixture of joy and um, inspiration with sometimes, you know, very tumultuous things happening and a little bit of, of fear and instability, actually. Yeah. Was that fear mostly when you moved to the States during the revolution and the Iranian revolution? I was reading, I was actually reading about your commencement speech at Northeastern recently. You touched on this, um, your family escaping Iran during the 79 revolution. My parents also left around that same time. Fear, I say, was sort of a, I mean, it was great. I mean, got us out of the country, got them out of the country. Uh, but of course, different set of challenges when they got here. What was what were those early years for you and your family like with those difficulties in in the states? Well, I mean, honestly, we were we had gotten here right um, right after the revolution. We left the 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 the, the exit itself was pretty um, I would say difficult in the sense that um, the country started deteriorating while we were there, and we were at the American School in Tehran. And for example, the school was tear gassed and we were going through a lot of, pro we would get stuck, we would get stuck in crowds, you know, protests were happening. And um, finally we decided to leave, but my dad stayed behind thinking it was only a temporary situation, but it was not a temporary situation at all. Um, and so um, um, I would say that the, Finally, when we got out here, we went to DC, Washington, D.C., but it was the middle of the hostage crisis. So I think, understandably, that which was a, a terrible, a terrible thing that happened, um, people were afraid and under, they, they were afraid of Iran. They were afraid of Iranians. Um, and so there was a lot of, I would say, daily, you know, you know, bullying and discrimination at school, uh, for example. And um and then also, of course, the financial difficulties were very high because we had left everything behind. And it, it was my dad was not very employable as an Iranian citizen because nobody really wanted to hire him into these you know, government contract, U.S. government contracts. So it was only after he naturalized and, and uh, became an American citizen that he was able to be hired again and get those, get, you know, sort of start earning again. But so they basically, you know, imagine having everything wiped out when you're 40 and starting 100% from the, from zero, that was sort of their life and their stress. And then I was dealing with the school stress. So it was, it was tumultuous, I would say, but it, you know, it was a very good learning experience because for me, I just went to my strength and, and stuck with my strength, which at that point was really my intellectual strengths. Like I, my best friend was my I was thinking, okay, I'm going to invest in this brain, you know, and the brain of this brain is going to get me out of this situation. That's how I thought about it, which was, uh, you know, I have this one thing that that's, a, this is one thing I can control. It's my brain. There's only one thing I can really control. And that's, that, that's what it came down to for me. So school, I worked really hard at school and did well. Yes. Yes. I, I just interviewed Firuza Duma, who is an Iranian writer and uh, her family immigrated here. Uh, a little bit earlier than the revolution, but still echoed a lot of what the sentiments, you know, the sort of like, you just have to, it's a sort of, you're surviving, you know, here and trying to assimilate. How was the sort of 
assimilation for you as someone who, yes, is Iranian, but also Chinese mm-hmm. and now also American. And really, you're like a citizen of the world because you've, you know, you're, you've traveled your background. What, what did you feel most attached to in terms of your identity as a kid? And how did that maybe change as you got older and have, gained more agency in your life? Yeah, that's a such, I'm so glad you asked that. I don't think anyone's actually ever asked me that before. And I would say that I, I, um, you know, when I was in Iran, I was also an outsider because I was half Chinese, you know, I wasn't really pure Iranian and nobody really saw me as Iranian there. Uh, My family was wonderful to me. I had a huge extended family and loved going to those multi-generational get togethers with the huge piles of like food on these large tables. I mean, if only people here could really see how beautiful it was. I mean, imagine grandparents, parents, children running around in these massive parties, um, doors opening out into the garden in Tehran, you know, you know, on a summer night. Um, it was magical. Um, but I was also still a tourist. I was an American tourist going through this because I wasn't really, you know, fully Iranian, you know, so I could observe from an outsider's perspective. And, um, when I got to the States, I wasn't, I was really confused. I'm half Chinese. I don't really know anyone in Washington, DC who is half Chinese. There was like basically nobody. I, I knew no one who was half Asian. Um, it was only when I came to California that I saw all these half Asian people. And I thought, my gosh, I found all, all of these people just like me, you know, but at that, that time you didn't even know what to call yourself. You know, if you were half kind of biracial, if you will, um, there was not really the vocabulary in school. People didn't know what to make of you. So I really, I'm really happy to have two great cultures. Um, we battle over, they battle over rice actually. So, you know, the Chinese really like short grain, sticky rice and the Persians love long grain, fluffy rice. Um, but it's a it's two cultures that actually have a lot in common. I would say they they love education. They're very you know, there's just just a ton in common between my parents who are deep intellectuals, um, and um, and I'm just very grateful that I can appreciate both of those cultures. So uh, I feel very I feel I do feel like I'm um, um, you know a, a person of the world, you know a citizen of the world. United Nations in our own house is kind of how I would I would describe it. And how do you, you talk about crediting your intellect as helping you navigate the challenges of, of your youth? Obviously, that served you as well as you went on to build multi, multi-million dollar companies, many of them, and now uh, your latest venture, Heretic Ventures. I'm just curious, what else helped you in your adult life besides academia? How, mm-hmm. What else do we need to become you? You know what I mean? Like there's intellect, but I would guess too that having this worldly experience, you have an immediate sense of how to read a room. You're really good at reading people. You know how to adjust and almost be a chameleon no matter where you are because you have this sort of privilege of having been in all these different rooms and experiences throughout your since childhood. Yeah. So maybe open up a little bit of that too, is like mm-hmm. the ingredients that went into building the, the life that you have now as an entrepreneur. Yes. I, I think that's great that you're asking that. I think it's, um, I would say empathy and, um, uh, empathy, empathy and, and basically being able to, um, see things from the outside, from an outside perspective are very valuable. Um, I, I think that the, you know, for example, in Egypt, I was at the American school in Cairo 
and um, all of the all of my friends were from all over the U.S. They were mostly military children of military or active military or, um, or or children of people in the oil business. And so my friends were from Texas, South Carolina, North Dakota, uh, from all over the U.S. I, I actually got to know the U.S. better in the American school in Cairo than I did in the U.S., funny enough, because there were people from all over the U.S. and I would go to their homes. And it was it was like it was like seeing the entire country in this tiny school. Um, and I really learned how to, like you say, morph into different cultures and really try to fit in and try to. And to this day, I'm just very, very comfortable um, hitting, hitting the sort of like the pavement, for example, building Minted's design community meant getting to know designers from all over the country and going into their homes and having meetups. And, and I'm really comfortable with that sort of on the ground community development. And I really credit that to the school experience of being in this like school with lots and lots of, um, of Americans from very different backgrounds. Um, so that, that I think that chameleon like thing has helped. I think judging, learning how to read people is something that I would say is one of the most important things to, to try to develop early. And you can practice this. Everyone can practice this. You can, you can start to sort of build your theses about people and, and how to read them and experiment quietly on your own, even when you're pretty young, you know, um, we have to make some really important decisions. Like who are we going to marry? That unfortunately happens very young in your life. Like, thank God, I feel very lucky that I, I, I really lucked out with my husband that I was able to read him correctly. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I met him when I was 19, you know, in college, sometimes people meet very young and they have to make decisions like, like that, that are, that are very consequential. And so, um, I always tell people if you can, one of my favorite things to do now is to look at a person and try to figure them out like a puzzle. It's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating and, and very like intriguing. So when I meet people, I mean, if it, let's say I'm interviewing people for a job or I'm just talking to them at a cocktail party, my mind is going, you know, on that, trying to figure out what makes them tick, what, what motivates them, you know, and is there any, any pattern or anything that I've seen in someone else that maybe reminds me a little bit that gives me some insight into this new person. So that, I think if you could develop that skill early, that will bode very well for, for and that's what happened to me. I, I met some really interesting people when I was in my early twenties in the Bay area. I sort of would say, I really think that person is going to succeed. You know, I think this person is going to be an incredible success. And if I recognize that early and, you know, I would gravitate towards people who I really felt were inspiring that helped me develop an incredible network. Um, that has benefited me to this day. I would try to figure out who I thought I really respected and who I thought was going to do very well and who I liked, who, who do I trust? Integrity is also super important, you know, in trying to read people, um, like reading the venture capitalists who made offers to my first company, Eve.com, my partner and I, were, we were thinking a lot about who we could trust and that we would turn down bigger names, bigger name VC firms to trade off to get somebody that we thought would, um, would be more trustworthy. And that really helped us because when we, when it came time to sell the company at the height of the, um, sorry, right, right before the whole market crashed, we wanted to sell the business and our venture back venture capitalists backed us on that decision. Yeah. So you're talking about, I think the right things. 
I'm le- I'm the one learning. I'm the one learning from you. I'm hearing that instinct is really important to cultivate instinct as early on as possible and to not be afraid to execute on that instinct. Sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong, but it, you have to go through the process to figure out the way and and to get better at reading people. When you are evaluating a business idea, let's moving moving now into more of your VC side mm-hmm. of your work and you're, someone's pitching you. It's a very tough environment right now, I would say. I think we can all agree that the, the environment, the economic environment's tight. And so with that backdrop, you're going into it for a pitch meeting. How do you, what do you look for in addition to a great idea? Are you again reading that person? Yeah, I think that the, I think it's, it's, it's a balance, just like you've, you've put it, um, you know, now granted our heretic, we at heretic, we incubate businesses as mostly we do make some investments as well. Um, and I think we're going to probably increase the, like this probably go fundraise because we're getting so much deal flow coming through our studio right now that because of what we do, we're ending up meeting a lot of people that we could invest in, which is great. The things we look for are you know, a large total addressable market, a large TAM. We look for um, potentially surprises, like positive surprises, positive growth trends in the business. So like it might, it might look a little smaller now, but there's a growth trend that will, that will uh, make it a, an industry of the future, particularly now with AI, because I think so many things are going to change that don't appear to be large right now, but are going to, you have to kind of sort of think around the corner, look around the corner and imagine what might happen. So it's very much benefit today's economy and today's situation benefits people who can think, you know, 10 moves ahead as to what might happen, how markets might react, players might react in the landscape. We look at, um, the ability to build a moat with the business can actually build a long-term competitive advantage and moat around itself that it's not, and that it's not a feature that a bigger company could just go and implement. Um, so we look for those things. Um, and then on the entrepreneur side, this is really interesting trying to assess, um, you know, try to assess somebody as an entrepreneur. And I think as an entrepreneur, I think it's, you know, conviction, passion, um, confidence, but also the ability to take the most out, like get the most out of the people who are trying to help you, you know, have this, have this, not this sort of like, I don't need help or I, 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 um, I know, I know it all, but, um, I have confidence yet. I'm going to find the people I respect and pull as much from them as possible. So that's sort of mindset, a growing, a growth mindset. Um, and then, you know, I think there, ideally it's somebody who has a, um, particular advantage in that space. You know, maybe for example, for me, it would be commerce and marketplaces are my advantage. If I were starting something myself, um, I've, you know, cause so much, so much, um, muscle memory and recognition of the underlying dynamics. Um, so those are the, so that I would say it's a blend inevitably of the person and the space that they're playing in. You brought up AI and, um, I'd love to explore this a little bit. I mean, yes, there's so many unknowns. We, we, it's kind of uh, the Wild West right now, and everything seems exciting and also scary at the same time. I think what's scary about it is, is this, uh, I think this truth that it would re- replace certain jobs. And so, but I always think like when there is that risk, there's also maybe an opportunity, right? Like what is that AI, what is it that AI cannot replace so that we as humans can go drill down on that? 
You know, we talked about things like empathy, reading the room, soft skills have really helped you in your comeuppance, in your success. And so as you are looking also, whether it's evaluating a company or even if you're just giving advice to an entrepreneur or, or anybody who wants to be a leader in business, given where the sort of the world is headed more towards innovation, technology, AI, how can we stay competitive? Well, I'm not a deep, deep machine learning expert. So I, what I, I can tell you what, what I've heard and what I sense is that these, that the machines will learn at a, at a, um, you know, an exponential learning rate. And I'd like to believe what I'd like to believe is that very truly orthogonal creative thoughts, um, you know, won't be there, that won't be there, that humans will continue to be able to beat machines at things like creative writing or, you know, um, certain, you know, creative pursuits, let's say, for example, I think that we already see that things like math, mathematics or coding, actually, I think those things are being, are going to be actually more quickly replaced. Um, things that are more with, you know, wrote where they're not wrote, sorry, where there's an answer, a, a, a right answer. Those things might, might actually be, um, replaced more, more quickly. Yeah. Um, I, I, one thing, one, one note though, as we've been thinking about that as at the studio, and we spend a lot of time thinking about the creator economy because of my background with minted working with, you know, tw- building this global community of almost 20,000 artists and designers. I think a lot about the creator economy and businesses that pertain to that at heretic. And we, there are some businesses where we think humans really care that they actually are looking at the output of another human. They care about who, who is behind the creation. For example, music, people care, um, you know, who wrote it, who's performing it. Um, if, if they knew it was an AI written and performed song, would they, or would they not be, you know, as excited when the rock star is half the, half the proposition of the, of the, you know, is part of the, or a big part of the proposition of the music is the, is the identity of the artist behind it. Same with potentially fine art, potentially same with op-ed, you know, reading an op-ed piece, an opinion piece. Would we want to read an opinion piece written by an AI? Maybe for fun, maybe as a novelty, a little bit of novelty here and there, but are we really going to fall in love with that creative person behind the piece? the way we, you know, put the poster of the rock star on the wall. You know, I think like, I think, um, so we've just been debating whether the audience wants to actually, even if the AI is able to outperform the human, whether the human consumer wants that or not. So there's, there's a little bit of, I'll just, I'm not answering your question because I don't know the answer to the question yet, but I just would throw out a, you know, a, a, a question myself. Well, I, I get the logic. I don't know how many, um, you know, Middle Eastern mothers would approve of that, sending their, saying, you don't have to get an engineering degree. Why don't you go study ceramics or music? Because that's the future. That's where the secured jobs are. I kind of love that. I love that for uh, the youth <laughs> to feel yeah. like have permission to pursue yeah. really a passion now more than ever. It's yeah. kind of a, an I think way so. And I think the, the liberal arts, I think having a liberal arts, well-rounded education that no matter what crazy twists and turns we, we sort of face in the next 20, 30 years, that the person will be able to capably change direction quickly on a dime if needed and be able to not only that, but see things coming, we'll look around the corner, use a multidisciplinary approach to like understand what might happen um, and react 
quickly. I mean, uh, when I, when I went to school, we didn't have, there was no internet. We had no internet connections. There was no email. And I spent my entire career, you know, focused on, on something that just didn't exist. And I think it's because the the liberal arts degree, I, I went to Williams college, you know, helped me, um, you know, really helped me quickly see how exciting the opportunity was and what I could potentially do with it. And that, that, that's what I would, uh, that might be very valuable moving forward. And AI is basically math, you know? So we do still need mathematicians to build on that AI. Mm-hmm. I want to wrap here with a little bit on rejection. We all face rejection in our comeuppance in our youth. And even still, I mean, who's like every day I'm rejected, uh, <laughs> but you face some pretty, you know, hard rejections, like your baby ideas, like your big ideas, your baby ideas that became big ideas. Eve.com, you were told women don't buy online. They don't buy mm-hmm. cosmetics online. They were underestimated. And yet that was a huge exit. Minted told terrible idea. <laughs> well, we know how that worked out. So <laughs> how do you, uh, reconcile with rejection? Like, when do you know, like, whether I should listen to this or whether this is just someone playing devil's advocate for the sake of playing devil's advocate? Yet another great question. Um, Well, I'll I'll say first for all of the, all of those out there listening who get, who are rejected, that it doesn't sting any less each time you're rejected, even if you have succeeded. So please realize you're not alone in feeling the sting of the rejection. It really hurts. Um, I think um, it's very natural for people who are hearing about something that's going to change things to actually go into a sort of a con- either a conser- sort of a more conservative position, which is that's not going to work. So anytime you are pushing to change something that is, you know, it's either a new idea or you're trying to change the status quo, you're going to get a little bit of friction because people don't love change. And that's just a natural human thing. So don't feel like it's a necessarily a personal thing. Um, and if you're not feeling it, you know, if you wouldn't, if you, if you weren't feeling it, you may not have been taking enough risk anyway, potentially it's a good sign that perhaps you're pushing to change things. It's not a bad sign necessarily. Um, so I guess, I, I, I guess, um, um, I think that the, what I've been trying to do my whole life is think about the person delivering the feedback and whether the, the, the person is somebody that I respect in that zone or that sort of arena. So for example, if, a if, a um, if a person who doesn't play in consumer or retail at all says to me, I don't like using the word lux in an ad L U X E. We were using the word lux. I don't understand the word lux. Then I would say to myself, you know, I don't think this, this guy really shops a lot in, 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 in women's retail. He, Cause I've seen the word lux a lot and a lot of women know what that, you know, sort of understand what that word means. Um, so it just depends on like who's delivering the feedback and what are they expert at? And, and I, I think that's what's going on in my head is I'm putting a filter on things and I, and I sort of, depending on that, decide how, how seriously I'm going to take the feedback, if that makes sense. A hundred percent. I think it has to be said because I often find that we, in our pursuit of getting feedback and advice, we ask all the people and then really we should be asking like three people who have that Venn diagram intersection of like knows what you're talking about, is in the audience, Mm -hmm. has the experience. It's not your mom. It's not always like your best friend. It's not maybe even somebody you work with sometimes. So I think being first clear on 
who is this person? Where are they coming from? What is their perspective? And then from there, judging exactly. the feedback. That's right. Yeah. Well, tell us what you're excited for next. I, we got a little bit into Heretic and how it's incubating companies. Yeah. Um, what is the innovation? What are the innovations that you're really excited about next? Well, we are very excited about AI and the possibilities that it creates. You know, it, it's really reshaping the most fundamental paradigms in which we are going to use the internet, for example, which is where I play consumer internet. So we're focused on starting companies that use AI for new consumer applications. I think that the the ways in which, for example, we navigate the web, the fact that we use search, we, we look at search results right now, right? We Google something and there's a whole bunch of search results pop out. Even the, the, the search result, maybe we just prefer to have one result. You know, so, so basic things that we've grown up over the past 35 years, believing about how you interact with the, with, with the, with the internet, our interface are going to change pretty drastically. We may not need websites. There may, there may not need to be any <laughs> websites anymore. There may not to like certainly the whole browse structure, the whole user, the whole user interface, everything that we do right now, everything on your screen right now, everything could potentially change in terms of the design paradigm. So I think that the, um, that, um, some of the models, underlying models might become quite commoditized, but the winners might be people who decide or figure out a really, really great way for us to communicate with these new brains that we're forming. Really, it's about people who can figure out the interface layer and, um, that's a really big opportunity because it means we could disrupt a lot of businesses. A lot of really big internet businesses could be disrupted. So that's kind of what excites me right now. And completely, this is as big as the first wave of the internet, which was where I started my career <laughs> way back when my first business was right at the very beginning. And I'm getting a second, a second opportunity, which is super exciting. Well, thank you so much for stopping by. You have such a, a full plate these days, as always. And we so appreciate your advice, your wisdom, sharing a lot about your upbringing and, and how it's influenced your choices in life. We'll love to have you back anytime. I'd love that. We'll be sure to send people to Heretic Ventures. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you so much for your great questions. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much to Mariam for joining us. Be sure you're subscribing to the show so you never miss a new episode. Friday, we have a fresh Ask Farnoosh where I'll be answering your money questions. Not too late to send them in. You can email me, farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com or you can direct message me on Instagram. Thanks for tuning in and I hope your day is so money. So money.